The text for the sermon this morning is taken from Luke chapter 13, the verses 6 through 9. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So far, the text. Following the proclamation of God's Word, we will sing together in response Psalm 32, the stanzas 1, 2, and 5. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we doing here? That's somewhat of a generic question, but it's meant to be. And with that question, we're not focusing so much on this particular time and moment as in, what are we doing here in this church building? Instead, the focus is much broader. What are we doing here on earth? What's our purpose? Avoiding all the philosophical discussion about the meaning of life, we know from Scripture that we're put here by God our Creator for the purpose of giving Him honor and glory in all that we do. But simply knowing that meaning of life as knowledge in our head is not enough. Because along with that question, we have to ask a follow-up question. How are we doing with it? Do our lives perfectly reflect that reality for which God created us? Or have things gone off the rail? We've already been confronted with the answer to that as we heard the words of the law earlier in this service. There it was clear that rather than being fruitful in our service to God, we fall short in every way. So what it comes down to is that throughout our lives, there needs to be ongoing self-examination. And we're familiar with that concept. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're called to examine ourselves. But such self-examination is not something that should only happen every other month. Self-examination is something that we ought to be continually engaged in. It's by examining ourselves that we are confronted time and again with our need for repentance. And that's what leads us to the parable we find in our text this morning. The Lord Jesus makes it clear that repentance is not something that should be held off until later, when it's perhaps more convenient for us. No, he says repentance is an urgent matter. And the reason for this urgency is clear. It's because the time of judgment is most certainly drawing near. I proclaim to you the Word of God this morning under the following theme. In view of impending judgment, the Lord Jesus warns about the need for urgent repentance. And we're going to consider two things this morning. First, the time of grace, 
And secondly, the certainty of judgment. So in order to understand the meaning of our text, it's important to first really consider the context in which the Lord Jesus told this parable. The truth is that this parable, when you look at the others, this one's not the easiest to understand. So going back to what we read in chapter 12, we can see that the Lord Jesus is instructing the people about interpreting the signs or interpreting the times by looking at the different signs. He's telling them, be aware of what's happening around you. And that's not a mere admonition to just be reading the news or being aware of current events for the sake of being informed. Rather, this is a matter of being aware of the time in which people live so that this awareness can actually function in daily life. For the Jews in Jesus' day, there were the signs, and they were there to give evidence of the fact that the Messiah had come. For us, signs are also there, signs given by Christ Himself, signs which show in that we live in the last days, that the Lord is certain to return, and that it could happen any moment. And thus, before it's too late, the record needs to be set straight. That is, those signs that are present must result in action. It's that of faith, believing in the Son of God, being reconciled to God before it's too late, and one is set outside the kingdom of God without hope of ever entering. And that's what leads us to what we read at the beginning of chapter 13. There were some people present there. They were listening to Jesus teach, and they told Jesus about a number of Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. Well, the question is, what exactly is going on there? The truth is that we don't know much about this event. Not even the Jewish historian Josephus tells us about it. But we do know this, Pontius Pilate was a bloodthirsty and brutal man. We can get the sense from the trial of the Lord Jesus that he was kind of indecisive and easily swayed by what people around him were saying, but that's only one part of the story. Pilate was known at the time of being absolutely ruthless. He had little regard for the religious customs of others. He had no sensitivity towards them. And so what apparently happened is that while a number of Galileans were making sacrifices, Pilate had them murdered. Now that's horrible in itself. But the traditional understanding among most is that this gruesome event took place during the Passover. And if that were the case, it would make the situation sacrilegious for the Jews. If the blood of murdered people were mixed with the blood of the Passover, consider what that would mean. The blood of the Passover, as we know from Exodus, that was the means by which the angel of death would pass over the house of the Israelites. They would be spared from the judgment of God through blood of another shed on their behalf. But now with human blood being mingled or mixed with those sacrifices, it would be taken as an attack against the religion of the Jews. It would be like Pilate saying to the Jews, 
You believe you're delivered by means of such blood? That's not the case. No God can save you from Rome. In the end, this was a means of Pilate that he used to quash any sense of rebellion or uprising. Well, some people come and they want to discuss this with Jesus. And it's like they're asking him, what do you think about this situation? And really, it's another trap they're setting for him. Because if he would respond and say, that's horrible, how could Pilate ever do that? Well, the Jews then could have easily gone to Pilate and reported Jesus as trying to stir things up among the people. He'd be considered to be inciting rebellion against Rome, which bore the penalty of death. But on the other hand, if Jesus responded with apathy, saying, okay, whatever had happened, well, the leaders could have used that as ammunition in turning the people against him, saying, look at him, he's an ally of Rome. He doesn't care about the Jews. But the Lord doesn't fall into their trap. As is usually the case, he ignores the superficial exterior, and he goes to what's lying at the heart of the matter. Among the Jews, they believed that if a person had to undergo such a trial, or they suffered a tragedy, like having their blood mixed with sacrifices, it was because they must have been terrible sinners who brought that punishment on themselves. And there's plenty of evidence for that kind of thinking in Scripture. You can think of the friends of Job, for instance. As Eliaphaz says to Job in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And even the disciples of the Lord Jesus had a tendency to that kind of thinking. In John chapter 9, we have the account of Jesus healing the man who was blind from birth. And right at the beginning, when the disciples see this man, then they ask the Lord Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? But rather than getting into a political discussion of some kind, the Lord Jesus uses this as an opportunity to direct everyone listening to him for the need for repentance. He uses that situation with Pilate and the Galileans, along with another situation where 18 people were killed when a tower fell on, crushed, on them and crushed them. And he asked the people around him, do you believe that these people who died were worse sinners? Well, those listening would have said, well, look at the situation of their death. Of course they were worse sinners. But then the Lord Jesus turns it on them and he says, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. And to illustrate that point, he tells the parable we find in our text. It's a short parable, and it packs a powerful punch. In the parable, there's a fig tree that has not borne fruit for three straight years. Normally, a fig tree would bear fruit annually. Now, in Leviticus 19, verse 23, the Lord had instructed His people, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. So in this parable, we likely have a tree that is six years old at minimum, fully mature, capable of producing fruit. But it hadn't done so. And thus, in the eyes of the owner, 
this fig tree was useless. And it's not because he was impatient. It's not because he wanted immediate results. He waited at least six years to get any fruit. And then even for the first two years where it didn't produce fruit and it should have, he didn't react and have it cut down on the spot. He just let it grow, and he was patient to that tree. But finally, he had enough. He says in verse 7, cut it down so that it doesn't steal nutrients from the ground that other plants could use, and this ground where it's placed could be put to better use. And humanly speaking, that makes sense. When something in a garden is unproductive, there's no use in keeping it. When there's no raspberries on raspberry bushes, they may as well get tilled under. They have no value or purpose. But then there's a sudden twist in the parable. The vine dresser, the one who takes care of the vineyard for the owner, he says, give it one more year. He says, during this next year, he's going to give this fig tree some very special attention. We read in verse 8 that he would dig around it. By doing so, the soil would be loosened, giving easier access for water and nutrients for the roots. It says this fig tree would receive extra manure, so even more nutrients. In the end, this fig tree was going to receive all the attention it needed for a year, everything it would ever need, so that it could be productive and produce figs. And what this points to is that this fig tree received a time of grace. It was given one more year than it ever deserved. It sounds strange to think of a tree in this way. After all, a tree is a tree. There's nothing special about it. And the Lord Jesus is not advocating for everyone to join the environmental movement and save the trees either. To understand what he's really saying, we need to understand that the fig tree had a special meaning for Israel. When the Lord spoke of a fig tree, it was another way in which he was directly talking about his own people. In Micah 7 verse 1, the prophet says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as then the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. And again, it's clear he's not referring primarily to some kind of agricultural disaster. He continues there in verse 2, The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. These prophecies are directed against the people of God. God had lovingly placed them in His vineyard. God had cared for them. God had provided all the nourishment that they would need. God had set them up for success so that they should have borne a harvest of righteousness and the fruit of praise on their lips. But when the owner, the Lord, came into his vineyard, he saw there was no fruit. We read, we read the same thing in Isaiah 5. So their place in his vineyard was actually nothing more than wasted space could have been better used. Still, God in His grace didn't cut them down. He was patient with them. He called them time and again to repentance. 
He sent prophets, so many of them throughout the years, each one calling the people to repent, to turn away from their idols, and to worship the Lord alone. There was this time of grace given by God to His people. And then in the end, He sent the chief prophet and teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal the will of God concerning redemption and salvation. But what did the people do with this prophet? They rejected Him and they had Him killed. They didn't recognize the signs of the times they were in. They chose to live in ignorance. And it starts to become clear how this parable brings together everything the Lord Jesus had just spoken about. As long as people are here in this world, what they are really experiencing is God's time of grace to them. It's a time that must be used wisely. It's a time for repentance, turning in faith to the living God and turning away from sin. Looking at the parable in our text, it seems that we're presented with two different characters. There's the owner who wants the fig tree cut down. There's the vine dresser who wants the fig tree saved. But what we're really presented with in this parable are two different aspects of the character of God. There is His justice, by which He judges the earth, and there is His mercy, in which He allows for a time of grace. And it's that time of grace, brothers and sisters, in which we still live today. This much is clear from what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2. We read there in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The fact that judgment hasn't yet taken place, that is all the result of God's kindness to His people. It's still the time in which they are called to repent It's still the time in which the voice of the Good Shepherd echoes throughout this world with the message to believe in Him and be saved from the coming wrath. And then the truth of the matter is this. God has put each one of us here in the best conditions possible to produce fruit. We're the objects of His love and grace in a most special way. For think of what we read in Psalm 92, verse 13 and following speaks about the righteous. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Those whom the Lord cherishes, He places in His house so that they have the best conditions possible for producing fruit. And in New Testament terms, it means that He places us where He is present, namely here in the Holy Congregation. Brothers and sisters, right here, right now, is where you see God's love to you. It's here among the people of God that you hear the good news of salvation proclaimed. It's here in the congregation where we see the good news of salvation confirmed through the sacraments. And the worship services are open so that the Lord can use these things to set the wonders of His grace and love on display to others as well. But it's right here. It's right now. God most greatly displays how much He cares for us. 
how He continues to tend us, to prune us, so that we have the best conditions possible for producing fruit. And this time of patience for producing fruit, brothers and sisters, it's so incredibly long because God is incredibly patient and gracious. Let's think about it this way. By rights, people have no right to demand patience of God. On the other hand, God has every right to demand fruit. When there is no fruit in people's lives, when people live for the self and their own glory rather than the honor and glory of the Lord, then God has every right to punish them and even to wipe them off the face of this earth. By virtue of not bearing fruit, that fig tree did not deserve its place in the vineyard. God does not owe His people more time. But in His abundant grace, He patiently gives another day, and then another, and yet another. And that is a key point in the parable of our text. It's the grace of God, and it's His amazing patience with those who don't deserve it. See those things in every day, brothers and sisters. Another day you're given by God's grace. Another day where no one perishes even though there may be a lack of fruit yet again. And it also means that this time of grace and God's patience is not a time in which God leaves people to do what they want. It's not a time where they're free to their own devices. It's the time for one thing, and that's repentance. It's the time to turn to Jesus Christ in faith, to confess sin, plead for the help and grace of the Holy Spirit so that we hate sin and daily flee from it. In this time of grace, it's the time in which we plead with God to shape our thinking, to mold our hearts, and to change our lives. And for those who do repent, they can indeed live in the joy of faith, knowing that their sins are forgiven and that God has indeed set the record straight for them. They can daily experience the joy of salvation confirmed through the Word of God. For the Lamb of God has shed His blood, replacing the Lamb of the Passover with a more precious Lamb. And it's in that blood where there is complete washing away of sin and guilt. It's in that blood that one is made right with the living God. And thus, in this time of patience and grace, each day is another day of producing a harvest of thankfulness to God. Another day on which to produce the fruit of lips that confess His name. One more day of living to His praise and His glory. One more day for living in faith according to the new nature by having that amendment of life which we confess to be our desire as we examine ourselves before Lord's Supper. And yet that desire should not only be there once every other month, but something that exists and something that grows every day again. So how is this for you? Can you say that you really live in the awareness of the time of grace? You haven't ignored God's patience? Does your life increasingly show a harvest of thankfulness and the fruits of the Spirit? Or is the patience of God something that we presume upon, thinking it 
it's here, and it'll just continue. Tomorrow will come, life will go on as normal, nothing changes, nothing ever will. For the people of Israel, we know that they rejected God's time of grace. In the end, they did not recognize the signs, and thus Jerusalem was destroyed and many people perished. Rejecting the Son of God has consequences. And in that, there is a lesson for us as well, brothers and sisters, and the lesson is this, the time of grace does not last forever. Rather, while always being aware of this time of grace in which we live, we must also recognize that there is the certainty of judgment. We come to our second point. Considering again the context in which our Lord told this parable, one thing He most certainly wants the people to realize is that judgment will come. We read that in verses 3 and 5 where He confronts them with the reality that unless they repent, they will most certainly perish. And based on the situations that are spoken of in those early verses of chapter 13, there's once again the instruction to realize life is very frail. Tomorrow is not a guarantee. There's no promise of growing old. Tragedy can strike at any moment. To use the illustrations found before our text, murders can and do take place. Towers can suddenly fall and crush people. Natural disasters occur. Diseases exist. All of that is just the start. The Bible fittingly compares our life to the grass, which is here one day and the next day gone. And knowing that life is frail, it makes us think differently about that time of grace as well. By confronting people with the fact that life is indeed so vulnerable, the Lord Jesus is teaching people that they cannot only think about the time of grace in the present, but they have to reckon with what is going to come in the future, namely that there is that judgment coming. And this comes out in the parable as well. The vine dresser, when interceding for this fig tree, he doesn't ask the owner of the vineyard for an unlimited period of time. He simply asks for one year. It's enough time for his extra care and labor to have the intended results, but the truth is one year is not that long. For those who are younger here, one year might seem like a very long time, but as one gets older, then we start to realize that one year isn't long at all. And once that one-year time of grace was over, then it would be time for the final decision to be made for that fig tree. As we read in verse 9 of our text, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Two options. Either that fig tree would produce fruit, and it continues on, or it doesn't produce fruit, and it gets cut down. Either people repent and produce fruit and so live eternally, or they do not repent and then perish. It was a sobering and necessary warning for the people of Israel during the time Jesus was on earth. They'd misread the signs. 
They were ignoring God's time of grace for them. They needed to hear what lay ahead if they continued to do so. But it's a sobering warning that is also given by the Lord to His people today. The gospel of salvation, brothers and sisters, demands a response of faith and obedience. The results of the gospel are not just lips that say the right thing because we know what to say in order to keep ourselves out of trouble. It's hearts. Hearts that are directed in love to the Lord and that seek to live out of that love. As the author to Hebrews writes in chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a rhetorical question because the truth is that no one will escape if they refuse to repent and live in thankfulness. And that much is also clear from the passage we read together in Romans 2. Beginning in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-being seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In the end, brothers and sisters, there are only two outcomes. Eternal life, filled with the abundant blessing and riches of God dwelling forever in His presence, or eternal death, filled with the wrath and fury of the holy God against our sin. It's something to take very seriously, for it is a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It gives every reason for self-examination. And as we said in the introduction, self-examination is to be ongoing over the course of our whole life, not just done in the week leading up to the Lord's Supper. And that comes out especially when we consider how the Lord Jesus concludes this parable in our text. When you look at it closely, then it's clear that this parable is actually very different from most others. Perhaps you noticed that when we read it. There's no definitive ending. The Lord Jesus never says what happens to that fig tree after that last year. And that's the whole point, brothers and sisters. By leaving the parable open-ended, He presents each one of us with that serious call to examine where our own heart is at. It's not a matter of worrying about others around us in the first place. That's also clear from the first part of Romans 2. We cannot read the heart of others, but we leave that to the Lord. That's why it's called self-examination. And there is the warning given to those who do not repent and live by faith. And it's a warning especially for people who are members of the church. If there are no fruits of repentance, there will be judgment. The time of grace and patience will come to an end at God's ordained time. And when that time ends, there's that definitive ending... After that, there's no opportunity to repent. And keeping in mind the frailty of life, which we spoke of a moment ago, for all we know, repentance could come down to this. It could be now, or it could be never. So let's think about it from this perspective. And each one can, talk, each one can consider it for themselves, do you want to gamble your whole eternity on a tomorrow that might never come? 
There's no time to presume upon God's patience and act as though it simply will continue forever. It won't. At some point, patience comes to an end, and when it does, the only thing left is judgment. The good news is that right now, there is still that time of grace. God still gives another opportunity for repentance, turning to Him in faith, seeking life and forgiveness in the precious blood of His Son offered on the cross. That's the urgent call of the gospel that goes out once more today. And for those who truly repent, then the way of life has been presented to us. And it's not about looking at ourselves. It's not about looking at us and seeing, okay, do the fruits match up? Is there enough to maybe get me through? No, it's a matter of this, brothers and sisters. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And it's easy to say the words because we know that's the right answer. But it's not just a matter of words again. It's a matter of your heart. To use the language of Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ and there will be fruit. Because then His life will be flowing through you. His life which causes you to be active in His service. It all comes down to Christ. How He makes us who were dead branches alive once again branches able to produce the fruits of thankfulness. That's the illustration the Lord Himself uses in John chapter 15. And for those who are rooted in Christ through faith, there is no judgment because their judgment took place on the cross at Calvary. Their judgment was in the past. It was born entirely by their Savior. Rather than judgment, they may look forward with eagerness to the time when they will experience the goodness and faithfulness and love of God to the full. And that will be the time where God has no need to be patient any longer because there won't be anything that offends Him. Instead, those dwelling in His presence will perfectly carry out the purpose for which they were created, namely giving honor and glory to the Lord in all things. And then there will be perfect harmony, blissful fellowship, and joyful communion between God and His children. Amen.